Hey, my name's Emma. Hey, my name's Maddie. And you're listening to The Pilot's Pandemic. This episode is brought to you by Paramount+. Plus. Get in, loser! Mean Girls is now streaming on Paramount+. Plus. Join Katie Heron as she meets the plastics and Tina Fey's new twist on the modern classic. Get ready for more of the rumors, backstabbing, and jokes you loved from the original movie with some fetch surprises. Rated PG-13. Wear pink and head to ParamountPlus.com to try it free. Welcome back to this week's episode of The Pilot's Pandemic. You're here with your host, Emma, and our lovely co-host, Maddie. What's up, guys? And this week, we are joined with a special guest, Captain Renee O'Shaughnessy. Hi there. Thank you so much for joining us today, Renee. Um, And give yourself a little introduction. Who are you, Miss Captain Renee? Mm. Hi, everyone. And thank you, Emma and Maddie, for inviting me on the show. I'm just thrilled to be with here with you and everyone that is listening. Well, just a little background of myself. Uh, yeah, I'm Captain O, they call me, and I'm the founder of um, Piloting to Wellbeing. Uh, that is a, uh, an organization that I have founded, and I help pilots and student pilots uh, navigate uh, their way through this aviation system that is not easy to navigate and to stay flying healthy. Uh, I'm uh, author of the recently published book, This is Your Captain Speaking, What You Should Know About Your Mental Health. I've spent 35 years in the airline industry. Um, Recently, I've retired as a 767 captain, and it's an industry that I love. So I've had 35 very, very satisfying years in the airline industry. Um, I have traveled the globe and actually my favorite place in the world though I'm asked all the time is with my family and spending time on the east coast and west coast of the United States and my hobbies are gardening and meditation and the love of learning. Well Renee you are an incredibly interesting person and even more successful and we are so excited to get into everything that you've provided as a resource to the aviation community. But first, I want to start at the beginning and ask you, you know, how did your love for aviation come to be? Who inspired you to be a pilot? Mm. Uh, That's a really interesting and very good question. And a question that I'm asked often, (laughs) you know, I, back when I was uh, a kid, it was, it it was um, unheard of for women to become airline pilots. Um, pilots were thought of as, you know, smart and, and debonair and, um, and somehow we thought of them subconsciously as being more, you know, mentally fit because of their training. And when I was a kid, uh, this high performance, high demanding profession was only reserved for the best of the best, you know, pilots that had all the right stuff. And only men who had nerves of steel earned th- this distinction of being called pilot. 
But um, to, start, to answer your question, that, that never stopped me from dreaming that someday that I wanted to become a pilot. You know, and it's funny because it never occurred to me that flying a jumbo jet, or as we say in the industry, a heavy jet wasn't an option for me. You know, I thought to myself, well, you know, I had nerves of steel, you know, I was smart. And the truth be known, though, I needed to cut down, um, kick down a few big barriers in order, you know, to enter into one of the most demanding high performance uh, professions on earth. And that's the role of a professional pilot. I love that, Renee. Like you're inspiring in that way because it's like we know that back then it was actually really hard to get into the industry, and it is still like a male-led industry. And we're and still today, women are kicking down those barriers. So one of the questions that I had for you was, what was your fl- flight training experience like when you were younger? Um, like, what school did you go to? How many females were in your class, if there were any females? <laughs> and what year did this happen for you? Oh, yeah, all great questions. Wow, back in, I would say 19, must have been 84. Um, I got my, I, I was a civilian pilot. Uh, I did not go through the military rank, so I was a civil, civilian pilot. And I got my training in a little FBO in Western Pennsylvania called. Uh, actually, it was through a community college. So it was called the Community College of Beaver County, and they had an aviation program. And what was so unique about this aviation program is uh, that they had pulled from this aviation program that the community college sponsored, and we were kind of like a feeder into an airline called Allegheny Airlines, and then it turned into US Air. So um, it was a very well-known school. A matter of fact, back in 1984, it was considered the number three school in the entire country to train not only young aviation professionals, like pilots, but ATC controllers. Um, I was the only girl, you know, in my class, because not only did I learn to fly, I received an associate's degree out of the curriculum. So I had to, you know, attend classes and, you know, not only pilot specific, but physics and algebra and all those courses that you have to take when you're obtaining uh, a degree. So yeah, I was, I was only only girl in uh, my aviation classes. But of course, that wasn't so in my traditional college classes. Wow, that's so interesting. I, I can't even imagine like, I mean, I know you must have been very brave to be able to say, like, this is what I'm going to do, given everything that you were speaking about, about the current climate. But like Maddie said, you know, we know that female pilots are few and far between, even today. It's 2022. But I can only imagine all the adversity that you faced at the start of your career. And I wanted to ask you, were there ever times that you felt unwelcomed? Um, the short answer is all the time. Wow. <laughs> that did, that uh, you know, it was an atmosphere that you you were you were accepted, but you weren't welcomed. 
And yeah. with that, let me tell you just a little side story because, you know, I, I think storytelling is so rich. You know, it's it just it it opens the door to experience and what it was like. So if if I may just tell you a story that, you know, I began flying in nineteen. Um, 87. And when I say flying, I mean flying jets. So in 1987, you know, we talked on a phone that was on a wall in our kitchen, you know, and, and, and it had a long cord. So, you know, I'm just kind of painting you a picture. And in 1987, in order to change the channel on the TV, you actually had to get up off the couch and walk over to the TV and turn a dial. And, and in 1987, you know, we all had this big hair. I mean, if you, if you Googled pictures of women in the 1980s, we all had this like big teased up hair. And in 1987, there weren't a lot of women airline pilots, you know, women flying jets, we were just thought of as to be odd. You know, let's just call it as it is. It, you know, it was a man's world. Yeah. And so while today's women are striving to break the gas, the glass ceilings, back in 1987, we were just like kicking down walls, you know, yeah. kicking down, you know, kicking down barriers. Um, and in 1987, you know, I was a wife. I had three kids. I was a daughter. I was a pillar in the community. And I was also an airline pilot and my commitment to my family was so strong that I elected to work the graveyard shift. And what that means is I flew all night long and which made, made my, made me even more odd uh, because, you know, I had children and, and, and I had this traditional role, but then at yeah. night I came out and I was Batgirl and I flew all night long. So <laughs> for 15 days a month and for over 20 years, wow. uh, here's how, you know, here's, here's how it went. You know, I cooked dinner, I orchestrated homework, supervised bath time, read bath, bedtime stories, you know, tucked the kids in bed, gave them good night, hug and kiss and tidied up the house and said goodbye to the babysitter. And by nine o'clock PM, I was out the door. And I started my full night's work in a high performance aircraft. And after flying all night long, I landed at dark 30. And you know, that's pilot talk for 530 AM in the morning. You know, I jumped in the car, drove home, went in the door, up the steps, got the kids out of bed, poured the syrup and poured milk over the cereal, packed lunches, packed backpacks, kissed the boys goodbye, and off they went to school. And off I went to bed. But to answer your question in a more specific way, there was bias back then more than we have now. And today's women may have it easier, but they don't have it easy still because it is being in aviation, especially a professional pilot, is still dominated by men, no matter how you slice and dice it. Yeah, yeah. I totally agree with you on that. I think, honestly, women are fighting barriers in, in all areas, but especially aviation. It's just, you see it more often than not. So 
Um, with you, do you have like a specific circumstance that you remember where you felt like there was like the sexism going on? Oh, I could give you many, but the first one that comes to my mind was my first ex my my first experience of when it was just so blatantly clear that I was not welcome, and it happened to be the first airline that I that I was hired. And if if you could if, if you could picture this, so I was civilian. I came from the commuter background, which meant that my first type rating in my, uh, was uh, BA 3100, and that's a jet stream. And I was a captain on it. And, um, you know, when, as you well know, when you get enough hours, you then are allowed or based on the requirements to reach out to um, airlines if that's where you want to fly. You can go corporate, you can go airlines, you can go to the business side of aviation. But I decided, I always knew in my head that I was going to fly a jet, a big jet. It just never occurred to me that it wasn't going to be an option. So my first big airline, um, I walked into the um, a room. It was a room in the schoolhouse, we call it. And there were a bunch of men. And back then, we could identify ourselves. So we had these little name tag teepees that had our name, where we came from, our birth dates. We even had our birth dates on it. And the type of equipment, your last equipment that, that you flew. And uh, so my name tag had my name, my birth date, and the, my equipment was a BA-3100, which was a jet stream. So try to envision this. So you, I walked into this room, a school room, and there's the conference tables, you know, the traditional long tables with our name tags on it. And behind the name tags, there were a stack of books a stack of books. And the instructor came into the room and he says to everyone, and before you leave here, you will know everything in these books, everything. And if you find yourself in a situation today that you're not supposed to be here because this isn't what you're cut out to do, it's time for you to leave. And I'm thinking to myself, oh my God, he's thinking, he's looking at me, he's looking at me. I know he's looking at me because here I am, little commuter girl pilot, and I'm in a room with all these F-18s and F-14s and C-130s and all these men who had all this heavy jet experience. So um, it was much to my surprise, about 30 seconds afterwards, I hear the chairs moving and two men got up and they left the room. And I'm thinking to myself, you're, you're leaving? You haven't even, you haven't even tried yet. And, and from that point on, um, we were thrown in the simulators. And here is where was my first, even though I didn't, I thought he was referring to me because I had such limited experience that I wasn't in the right place. And maybe so, but it was blatant when I got into the simulator and my simulator, the airplane I was, I was being trained on was at that time, one of the 
what the biggest jet in the world, and that was a 747. So I get into the simulator and my instructor, uh, and we were paired up and my, my, who I was paired up with, and we still are friends to this date, his name was Lane. And when Lane was behind the panel, it was a 747 panel. We've got an engineering degree before you were promoted to the first officer. So we all got engineering degrees, not engineering um, type ratings. So we went in, there's this huge panel. I mean, if you could imagine a five foot panel and you were the engineer, it was like you were the wizard of Oz, you know, behind the panel just, and I'm looking at this panel, I'm thinking, oh, this is it. You know, I will never be able to remember all of this, but the truth be known, Lane was saying the same thing. I mean, it was just overwhelming, but it was interesting because when Lane was being instructed in the seat behind the big panel. There was a lot of understanding, showing, but when I, it was my turn, it was a lot of shaming. Mm -hmm. A lot of shaming of what I didn't know, where did you come from, get out of the seat. And it was very demeaning. So yeah, that, that was the one that really stood out of not my, my, my position my skills, my education, you know, were not recognized. Oh yeah. I, I totally get that too, because even Emma and I in our advocating work, like people just find small things to shame us for. And it's, it's always shaming. It's never like constructive or, and we've always said it always comes from men, which is very interesting and telling too. So um, I'm just so glad that you stuck with it and you were stuck it to the man and showed him yeah. you are capable <laughs> you do know what you're doing mm. but moving on to something a little bit lighter and I'm I'm sorry you had to experience things like that I I know I've I've had a few experiences in my limited time in the aviation world and not even an aviation career just in my training there have been a few moments but I can't imagine you know, what it was like back then. Now, you know, I had at least another girl that was at the flight school. Granted, we barely ever saw each other, but at least I knew there was another girl. Mm. Um, and it's a little bit more norm normalized, but I know with that generation, like I, there were times at the airport where I felt like the people who were being the rudest to me, being the most discriminatory against me were always the older male like the mm -hmm. older male generation. Um, and I know that's probably a lot of the people that you had to work with and, and be around. Um, so I, I just can't imagine, I know I'm rambling right now, but it's just, I can like, I can only imagine. And again, I just, I do admire you, but like I said, we, we connected through our mutual friend and ally, Dr. Billy Hoffman, because of our shared vision of how changing mental health in aviation should be regarded. Um, I wanted to ask you, like, can you share with our audience your background in aviation? I know we spoke about it a little bit, but more specifically, how did you come to being a mental health advocate in aviation? Oh, that is a, a very good question. You know, I, I heard, I became a mental health advocate um, and I knew I had to write a book 
when after I spent 35 years in the airline industry and I am honored to hear the stories that I had inside and outside of the cockpit, you know, men and women, um, primarily I fly with men and very few women, but um, everyone has a story and everyone has a story about a situation that they're struggling with. And after a time, you know, I started seeing a pattern you know, 264 million, I think it's up to 300 million people struggle with depression. And 70 million people suffer from um, anxiety. And 17% of that, they struggle with high function anxiety. So seeing this, this pattern in behaviors, to think that pilots aren't a subgroup of that bigger group, I think is to be foolish. You know, pilots are no different than anyone else. We struggle just like anyone else. And, and to be quite honest with you, we, there are, there's research out there that show that we even struggle more because of the system that we are required to operate in. Yeah, yeah that's something I actually just recently just saw, I think it was yesterday, a couple people had sent me a article on a JetBlue pilot who just got popped for having a, a 0.17 or blood alcohol. So he's drinking while he was flying yeah. and got caught. But um, I think always that people think, oh, these pilots are just alcoholics because they have this awesome life where they get to travel all around. It's always such a, a party where they don't really flip the script and think, well, maybe they're drinking because they're lonely and, mm. and because of the system, like you said, the system that has in place is, has brought them to the bottle. Um, so um, I'm glad you mentioned that and shared that because it is important to know that this system has shaped how pilots react and their mental health is still not being addressed. So that leads me to my next question for you. We know that you've been a, like a very diligent leader to many pilots and helping them with their mental health struggles, as well as their like different situational stressors. So can you just share a story with us where you felt you helped change even a single pilot's course of action with their mental oh. health? Yes. Oh, the story. And it's, yeah, the story. I was in... Okay, part of my volunteer work was through, uh, and if you have money, you have resources, and thankfully so. So I was very fortunate to be part of uh, our system called CHIRP, which is uh, critical instance response program. I also was part of the PATH, that's Pilot Assistant Team Hotline, and PATH, the, the acronym PATH, is for pilots who are struggling outside of the job. CHIRP is for, like, if you fail a check ride and you just can't get through that check ride, as long as you're in the seat, the CHIRP committee reaches out to see if they can get you some resources in training. Versus PATH, the PATH is if you're struggling with situations outside of your seat, outside of the training environment. And then of course there was pro stands, which is professional standards. So I was acting in a 
PATH volunteer one day. And how that works is if a pilot is struggling, they call a 1-800 number. And there are volunteers like myself that are on a rotating list. And I just happened to be on that rotating list at that moment in time that a pilot called in. He was a 777 Czech airman. And he was on a layover in a city, um, Phoenix, Phoenix, Arizona. And he was scheduled to fly that night. And he called and I was the next one to pick up the phone. And the 1-800 number contacted me and said, are you available to talk to this pilot? I said, absolutely. I think I said I was on a layover in Indianapolis. And he was struggling with suicidal thoughts. And at that time, we didn't have any training in suicidal prevention or suicidal aid or mental health aid. So I was, of course, very focused. And through a higher power, I was able to get him to safety. Um, and he lost his job. Um, and, and, and what happened is that uh, he was struggling. He was struggling with depression and he was taking depression medicine um, uh, underground, as I write in my book. You know, the pilots either don't medicate or they self medicate. So he was yeah. self medicating with antidepressant medicines. Of course, he wasn't claiming it on his medical and he was feeling really good. And so he stopped taking. The, mm. the, the SSRI. And what happens is when you stop taking that, it has a, a very adverse reaction mm -hmm. to your body and it spirals you into a deep depression. So that's what he was experiencing on a layover in Phoenix, Arizona. He had about five hours before he was going to fly that night. And I'm just so grateful that he reached out when he did. And I was the person on the other line. And even though he struggled for six or seven years and to get his job back, and we went to bat for him in many, many ways, uh, he was just brought back to the line about six months ago. Oh, wow. Uh, so, yeah, he... Uh, he, he, uh, that, that was my proudest moment to take someone from the bottom of low. despair. Yeah. Despair to a place of safety, then to a place of joy. Mm. It's incredible that, I mean, you said six years it took mm. him, but he's still, he, he's, he's back on the line. That's yeah, that's incredible. But, you know, given and I and I can only imagine that is one of many situations you've had to deal with. And because of that, I can only imagine the growth it's given you. And we know that, you know, you just briefly mentioned your book. This is your captain speaking. Can you expand on what the book entails and how you feel it can help pilots on the flight line? Oh, absolutely. Thank you for asking. You know, the book, I'm asked that of, of quite often, and the book is 
really just about raising awareness and shedding light on a topic that is long overdue. And that's the barriers and the fears that pilots face in a system that is not easily, that is not easy to medically navigate. You know, it's a book that it starts the conversation about pilot healthcare reform and how pilots can take better care of themselves. You know, it's also an aim to raise awareness, not only about the pilots, you know, their own individual health, but as well as the collective health of the industry. Yeah. yeah. And I think, I think it's, it's really important. Sorry, Emma. No, you, you're, you were just going to say exactly what I was going to say. <laughs> yeah, I, I, it's, yeah, it's important that we raise awareness and we need, Emma and I are always saying this, like we, we feel sometimes that we're the only ones. And so what connecting with you was a big deal because we're like, okay, there are other people joining us in our efforts to share and spread awareness on mental health and aviation and that pilots are having issues. So having that resource is big because we do talk to quite a few pilots who feel very alone in their struggle with their mental health. And I try to tell them, you're not the only one. I actually have many who have very like similar stories that I'm like, there are other people out there that are having these struggles. And I know it feels like you're all alone in this, but really it is an issue for many pilots Mm. and they're either going to share the story with us or they're just going to bury it. But at least telling them that they're not alone, that I think that's super important for them. Um, And I know in our previous conversations, we'd gone over why all of us feel that aeromedical reform is so important um, collectively, collectively, you, I, and Emma all feel that it is a safety risk to pilots and the public. Um, and so what I wanted you to touch on, because I thought it was very intuitive of you when, on our previous conversation, you had talked about um, ASAP reports and really opened our eyes to mm. that. Mm. And so I kind of wanted you to share with our audience the trend of ASAP reports, what they are, and what that could mean for aviation safety. Yeah, good question. And thanks for um, thanks for bringing that up. Um, ASAP reports are, um, how can I say this? Uh, the goal of, uh, well, there, the, it stands for Aviation Safety Action Program, and it was initiated by the FAA. So the goal of the Aviation Safety Action Reports, as we call them, ASAP reports, is to enhance um, aviation safety through a prevention of accidents and incidents. So what it does, it encourages an employee an employee, specifically a pilot, to volunteer voluntarily report safety issues, even though they may involve an alleged violation. I think it's Title 14 of the Code of the Federal Regulation. I can't remember the number, but it's it's basically just that. You know, if something unsafe happens in the sky or on the ground, the FAA encourages you to voluntarily report through a generated form through your employer. Now, as far as I know, every airline takes participation in this ASAP program. And I may be wrong, but unless they've just signed on, Delta is the only airline that does not take um, participation in this ASAP report program. And the point that you and I talked about, or Maddie and Emma and me talked about 
uh, in our last conversation, we just touched upon how the ASAP reports, even though we have not had a catastrophic event and people say to me all the time, what are you talking about? You know, aviation safety is as safe, as safest as it has ever been. Well, is it really? I asked them, is it really? Because if you look at the ASAP reports and the trend of the ASAP ports are increasing and especially in the past two years. So if pilots are reporting about a safety issue, safety is safety, whether it is catastrophic or whether it is an altitude deviation or a heading deviation or you landed on the wrong runway or you taxied on the wrong taxiway, it's still an accident waiting to happen. Yeah, I'm, I'm really glad, you know, I was very, it was very refreshing when we spoke last week when, you know, you kind of said that this is a safety issue. And like Maddie said, we've, we strongly feel that way. Um, and it feels like Statistically, yes, aviation is safe, but you know, you have to do a little bit of digging. This is why it's so important to know these kinds of things and why it's important to people to talk to people like you, Renee, because that's something that I would have never put two and two together to like look at that in retrospect to our safety standards. But since we're talking about the uptick in reporting and how those trends could lead to an aviation safety risk, how do you think pilots should help themselves to mitigate risk? for them and also their coworkers? Good question. Um, you know, right now, the only thing, well, first, let me say, don't get me wrong. And I don't think you're saying this or Dr. Hoffman is saying this, but uh, we're not saying that every pilot has a diagnosable mental health condition. What we are saying, and I should say what I am saying in this book is that we all have mental health. You, me, everyone. And we all have the human right to take care of our physical and mental well-being without barriers or fears to losing our job. You know, pilots yeah. are no different than anyone else. And, and as I said, we, we suffer more than the general population due to the system in which that we are required to work. And it's a system that makes it difficult to ask for help in fear of losing the ability to provide for your family and to, and to lose your identity. I mean, let's, let's yeah. face it. It's, it's a vocation. A professional pilot is the vocation. And when something like this medically or, you know, psychologically, you know, happens because we're human, that impacts our self-worth. Yeah. I I've seen it. I've seen it firsthand, like with my father, I think growing up, I've, I've said this a lot on my podcast, but my dad's biggest fear was the, 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 it was always just like the dark shadow in the closet. Like, when is it going to come out to bite him in the ass that something is potentially wrong? And I said this on one of our previous episodes, but one of the last conversations I had with him was he, he felt like he had no sense of identity anymore. All yeah. he had was this endless amount of hours in his logbook and nothing really else to show for himself in the real world. People don't equate those hours in your logbook to real world experience. Um, my dad felt so lost. I, my dad always, I think his mental health, I think there were 
definitely different ways that he struggled. I think being very anxious all the time. I see that now where, you know, these, these fears that he had, they were very anxiety based, um, running the amount that he ran all the time, every, every day, always running on his trips. That to me is anxiety. Um, that to me is fear. That's just lingering there. And people shouldn't, people shouldn't have to live that way. It, it's, it's just, it's insane to me what you said there. It is a basic human right to be able to seek care for yourself, to be able to want to live a happy, healthy life. Um, you know, I, don't, I think if my dad wasn't so scared, he would have sought help a lot mm-hmm. sooner, a lot sooner. I even think about my own husband, him being a pilot for his whole life. That's like one of his only jobs he's ever had. And when we were faced with the pandemic, we really thought he was going to get furloughed. And I did ask him the question because I was very concerned. He was very stressed too. But I said, well, who are you if you're not a pilot? Mm. How do you feel about that? Because I knew that that was something that he was really stressing about. And I think that's a question that all pilots should ask themselves is, what am I if I'm not a pilot and what am I going to do if I'm not? Because that is something that I've seen a lot with pilots is they really root themselves in their pilot identity. But like you said, Renee, you are more than a pilot. There's Mm -hmm. so much more to you than you just being able to fly a plane. Absolutely. Absolutely. So that leads me to my next question for you. We've kind of had conversations about how to change mental health and aviation and, and the regulation aspect of it by the FAA. Um, and I really liked our conversation. I think that was last week or the week before where we talked about basic med and how you thought basic med would be like a great start. So can you explain basic med to our audience and how the FAA could, could implement that when they're overseeing pilot medicals? Yes. And too bad Dr. Hoffman isn't on the show today because he would be able to give you specifics. And I'll shy away from giving specifics because I just know a broad version. But here's the thing. Industry veterans warn of an impending health crisis that, that aviation is facing general aviation and college campuses specifically. You know, and according to the New York Times, some administrators worry that there is a conflict between protecting students' physical health and their mental health. And then you throw in a pandemic and isolation and fear of loneliness that accompanies it, and you have a recipe for concern. And this is especially true in the aviation industry, a a profession that has strict safety requirements, as well as rigorous standards uh, for professional certification. So what what Dr. Hoffman and what I want to do is to keep pilots flying healthy. And a way we can do that, and it's not going to be easy, you know, major change takes time. And I am hopeful that we will have change as we move forward. But one of the things that I'm very hopeful for is a model called... Um, Uh, basic med. And basic med is, again, a broad sense is you would not have a AME, you would go to a 
a surgeon or a specific doctor, a specialist of your choice. And let's just take a cardiologist. If you were under the care of a cardiologist and you had coronary um, heart disease and you were on medication, as long as you were on a medication and you were doing well, he, he or she would sign a paper and they would forward that either to the FAA or if the AME would still be you know, part of that system. But right now, basic med is not. As long as you are under a, the care of this specialist, that's all you need. I don't envision the airlines going that streamline, that, that, that specific clean, but I think it's a good role model, uh, a good model that we could build from, that here is a system that is working, a model that is working. How can we make it work for the airline pilot? Yeah, I think it's a great model. So um, I'm glad that you brought that up in our conversation because it's, I'm always thinking about regulation and reform and in my own way, but I love to see other people's viewpoints because you can add to it. And basic med is already working, like you said. And so yes. I think it'd be great to expand on that for, at the FAA level. Mm-hmm. But Renee, I have another question for you. So we kind of briefly mentioned your P2W program, but what inspired you to start working with aviation students and providing them the resource that you have with your P2W program? Mm-hmm. Well, thanks for asking. I am passionate about kicking down barriers, as I have said in my book and personally and professionally. And I am passionate about also kicking down the barriers around mental health and keeping pilots flying healthy. Now, I think Emma said, or might have been you, Maddie, that at one point you felt that any discrimination or biases usually came from the older generations because talking about mental health was like the 800 pound gorilla in the room. You know, we all have mental health, but, you know, let's be honest, none are eager eager to disclose personal information. And pilots believe that being vulnerable and sharing feelings and emotions would be at best humiliating or embarrassing and at the worst, the end of their flying career. So they keep quiet and they go underground and they put off doing anything about it until they can hardly function as a crew member anymore. And then they're forced to take action. So I see that more in my generation. I see that generation of going, going, going until they hit that brick wall. Your generation though, I am very, happy and delighted that your generation, I think, has broken that cycle. You, uh, your generation are, are open and available to talking about mental health more freely. And I don't know how that has all evolved, but we can't happen. We, we can't change everyone. The, you know, the mentality or the mindset of my generation isn't going to happen. It may never happen about talking about mental health. And don't get me wrong, we've come a long way since the 1950s, and thankfully so, but we have a lot 
a lot longer or a lot more work to do. And focusing on the new generation of pilots, helping them navigate a system that is not easily easy to ask for help and keeping them flying healthy has become my passion. And the way we're going to do that is we're teaching or I shouldn't say teaching, we are mentoring and we are coaching the new generation of pilots on the whole self. And that means not only teaching the technical skills that come with pilots, the eight core competencies, and we know what, they're, what those are, all some of them are, you know, communication, situation awareness, uh, aircraft manual control, a decision-making process, you know, technical abilities and you know there and there's three more but I won't take our time up to talk about those but those that's that's the technical part of the pilot that needs to be trained but there's also the other part of the pilot that has received no training and that is the non-technical skills and let me give you an example any professional out there, let's just say a basketball player or a football player or an Olympian. Mm -hmm. They have a team of coaches and mentors that teach them in strength training, cardiovascular. They, they have a whole host of coaches and mentors that, that teach them the proficiency of their field, of their discipline. But they also have the entire other half of that, of the training circuits that teaches them the non-technical skills, the nutrition, why it's important to sleep, techniques for getting improving your sleep, nutrition, um, relationships, uh, stress management. That all goes in to being a professional. And unless you train the whole pilot or the whole professional or the whole athlete, then you create an imbalance. And when you have an imbalance, then you cannot perform at peak performance. Yeah, you're totally speaking to the choir over here because I was a college athlete. I told you I played basketball. Yes. Um, yes. So I totally get it. And we had all types of resources at our disposal and a bunch of mentors, as you said, we did a lot of team building together. So you always knew that your team was going to back you up on whatever you needed help with. Um, we had study time, you know, together so that we kept our grades up. Um, and obviously we had our own, when you get to the college level, you have your own personal trainer that trains you as a team. And he really, he was amazing. He talked to us. We did yoga, which was like the first time I ever did yoga. He was like, this is basically for your mental health. You know, like not every workout has to be like this sweaty <laughs> workout where you're running all the time. Like there are times when you need rest and he would really focus on sleep and, and our nutrition as well. So I'm glad that you pointed that out. So yeah. I'm, I'm, I'm often asked, for example, you know, talking about the non-technical skills, I'm often asked how I overcome stress. And my, and it made me think, uh, Maddie, you talked about yoga and my, my response always is, is the kind of thing that you might, or that you wouldn't expect, you know, it isn't like hot yoga or Pilates or hydration or nutrition. And don't get me wrong, you know, all those things are really important. But my number one 
priority for overall well-being and good health is sleep. Mm-hmm. There is nothing more valuable to my body and to my stress recovery than sleep. And it's so crazy. It's so crazy that sleep is the most powerful thing you can do to improve your immune system. It's like breathing. Sleep yeah. is the most natural thing that you can do to take care of yourself. Yeah, I totally agree with you. I actually follow a Instagram guy. He's all about sleep. He wrote a book on it. His name's Sean Stevenson. Um, and his podcast is called the model health show, but he is a bit, I started listening to his podcast like four or five years ago, but his biggest push was sleep. And so I totally agree with you on that. I've always thought that. And I think oftentimes people think, oh, well, the best way to recover my health is to work out and eat Mm -hmm. healthy. Um, but I feel like sleep is, is the most important is the top tier reason for people that they have issues with their, their health is because they're not sleeping. And especially in America where we just push work, 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 work. Um, and probably for you, Renee, because you worked back side of the clock, you probably had mm. to, to figure out how to get your sleep in. Oh, you know, I, I can't, while you're speaking, Maddie, I'm thinking about those nights and it reminded me of another story. So as I said, you know, I came in, I got the kids uh, uh, up for school, off the, off they went. I went to sleep for four to five hours. And here's the thing. I couldn't stay asleep. It wasn't because I wasn't tired because I was, I was exhausted, honestly, but it ended up, I was sleep deprived. Mm-hmm. And so let me tell you about sleep deprivation. You know, people like me and you and people that are, are um, high, high performers, we're what they're called sleep deprived. And we are more susceptible for depression, for anxiety, and for disease. You know, when I was at Berkeley, I went to a um, lecture by Dr. Matt Walker. He is a sleep um, expert. And what he, what he told us or what, what he shared with us is um, there are these killer cells that come out only at night and they increase our immune system. And, but on the other hand, if we don't get enough sleep, the killer cells don't come out and they don't restore our body and our mind. So for every one night of sleep that is restricted, to four hours of sleep, our natural killer cell activity drops by 70%. That is a concerning state of immune deficiency. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I totally agree with you on that. Um, and I, and that's a good point to make is like your immune system relies on your, you getting adequate sleep, which is eight to 10 hours, which people don't realize that, but you need to be sleeping eight to 10 hours. And pilots, I'm sure they're like, how am I going to get eight to 10 hours of sleep? But it's just something that you really have to prioritize if you can. Yeah. I talk about that. You have to prioritize your sleep. You have to push back on everything. You have to push back on your work, your relationships, um, projects, TV programs, workouts, everything needs to be, you know, you you need to push back on that because sleep, I know one thing for, for sure, sleep is your superpower. And if you don't get your sleep, that is at the foundational 
keystone of every other system in your body. Hmm. You're speaking to the choir. I'm like, I didn't sleep very good last night. I texted Maddie. I was like, I fell asleep at 9:30 last night, woke up at 2:30 in the morning and could not fall back asleep until six. And by that point, I've like had to wake right back up again. And all I can think is tonight, I'm going to have the best sleep of my life. And tomorrow <laughs> I'm going to wake up and be a brand new person. But it's so yeah. true. Sleep does really affect the way you feel. I, today I woke up feeling a little bit more anxious than usual, a little bit more, you know, emotional or touchy than usual. Um, and it's okay to acknowledge all those things, especially when you can kind of find a root cause for it. And that's something that I talk about a lot on the podcast is just awareness, like being aware of the things that are causing you to feel the way you're feeling, because a lot of times there's, it definitely leads back to something, but I'm glad you said that sleep is so important. But one of my last questions for you is what do you hope to accomplish with the piloting to well-being? Um, my ideal vision is to reach out to every aviation school in America and to offer them <clears throat> a glimpse of the work that um, P2W is doing and have them open their minds to treating, not treating or, or educating, because that's all we have. Until there's major reform change, that's all we have is education awareness. Hopefully they will become aware through things that we're doing, like having this podcast, because every small step is a right step, is, is a step in the right direction, that they are open and available to hearing how we can train the whole pilot instead of half of the pilot. Because at P2W, we believe with our whole heart that only 50% of training happens in the simulator. The other 50% is where flight training, flight schools have fallen short in treating the in training the pilot. Yeah, definitely. I, I think it's, I think it's awesome that you're coming at it from the perspective of wanting to work with students because we all know that students are what are going to be what make up the industry at a certain period of time. So training these people now is so important. And there really isn't a lot of education around that in school. I know in my flight training, like, you know, you have all these checklists and I say this all the time, there was always one external pressures. And I'm like, I always used to think like, why did they put this on this checklist if nobody really even knows what it means or if everyone's just going to skip right past it? Because not a single instructor has actually said, you know, or explained to me what external pressures actually are. And that's a loaded word. Like that can mean mm -hmm. so many different things. It's honestly, in my opinion, one of the most important parts on that checklist, yet it's the most ignored. Yes. Absolutely. And, you know, let's be honest. Uh, well, pilot mental health uh, isn't a popular subject, but mental health is a hot topic today. And the industries across the globe are recognizing that mental health impacts performance. And in our business, 
performance impacts safety. And as an individual, your mental health not only impacts you, but it impacts your family and friends and colleagues. And if we're not training the whole pilot, then are we really, are, are, are we really doing good for public safety and organizations and the industry and the pilot, him or herself? Because we haven't done it thus far. And to your point, external pressures, well, you, you don't even cover those. And if you cover those, they might just, there just might be a group of words. Well, let's talk. Let's, let's tell a story about how stress affects your life as a pilot. I mean, we can go on the internet and read about this. We know stress. We know we're supposed to be eating more fruits and vegetables. But how about just not buying anything in the airport that comes out of a box, a bag, yeah. you know, let's, let's just start there first. You know, what does that mean in the life of a pilot? You know, we know all this stuff. It's as easy as going on the internet, but we need to apply it to the profession of aviation, you know, pilot profession of, of, of aviation and make it have meaning. Does that make sense? Oh, mm -hmm. yeah. Yeah, totally. Yeah. Um, that's something that I really focus on um, in the beginning. Like, I don't know if I told you this, but I used to do aviation wellness and I used to focus on pilots being able to work out on the go and then also their eating habits. And I think at least in my own life, I've really tried to work on that for my husband because I realized like in, and pilots have to realize this, that everything you do even though you feel like day to day, it's not bad over time. If you've mm -hmm. been working in the industry for 35 plus years over China. time, your Taco Bell habit or your uh, right. China buffet that you get at the airport, it's going to add up. And so then it becomes uh, an issue later in life, which is what you don't want. Um, so I think it's important to, like you said, uh, educate these pilots when they're young, uh, mm -hmm. before they get to the airlines to understand, like, these are things that you need to focus on your sleep, your mental health, yeah. um, nip it in the butt, because if you let it go long enough, it becomes a bigger issue. It becomes an insomnia then. And we have circling back to this whole mental health thing. You know, we have pilots that self-medicate or they don't medicate at all. I can I, I can tell you stories of pilots that I've heard in, in and outside of the cockpit that, they take six or seven pills, one to bring them up, one to bring them down, you know, a supplement, melatonin, this one, that one. And they're, they're just a whole you know, bag full of supplements or, or pills because they're not addressing the root problem. Now, I don't have to tell you being an airline pilot is a tough job. It's one of the most high demanding professions on the planet. And so how do we teach? How do we educate the pilot? You know, I, I, I don't know about you, but, you know, I'm a lot older than both of you probably put together. <laughs> but a hundred years ago, when I was when I was in college and I was training as a pilot, never once, not once, did I get any training on how to take care of my physical and mental well-being. It just didn't exist. Yeah. Um, so we just wanted to end the the podcast with some fun questions. Okay. That's okay. If you have yeah. a little more time. Sure. Uh, we always love to just, you know, end on a, on a happy high note. 
and just for our, our audience to get to know you better as well. So this one is aviation related. Usually they're not, All but right. the first one is what is your favorite plane model? Boeing 747. I think that airplane has the most beautiful aerodynamic body. The lines are just very lovely. <laughs> is that is there still some 47s flying? Anyway? Yes. Yeah, okay. I think yeah, yeah, I think okay, okay. I was just wondering because wasn't it Qantas that used to fly some 47s mm-hmm. and then they took them out? Because I feel like- well, they, they they also took out the 380. Now I just read, I think Air France, British Airways, British Airways, that's what it was, brought back the 380s. So I think there are the 747s that are still flying in between yeah okay okay I was just making sure um Mm -hmm. Emma what about you what's your favorite plane model well everyone that listens to this podcast knows that like I'm not a plane buff or anything like that (laughs) that's that's my brother's forte but I was thinking about it and I'm like honestly just a, a good old beaver like a big single engine plane with lots of horsepower on some damn floats preferably (laughs) like a like a forest green with gold or yellow accents just something like that I don't know you know what I'm saying sure sure that sounds pretty cool yeah I love like any kind of just I like I like smaller planes I think that kind of says something about me because I've always kind of said that I don't really want to go into the airline industry and it's funny because Everyone gets so excited over these big, like you're saying, big, heavy jets. Mm-hmm. I get so excited over airplanes that look like my toys that I grew up <laughs> with. Like, like my dad's Piper Cub. I literally think it's the most beautiful airplane in the whole entire world. I love that plane with all Aww. my heart. Um, but what about you, Maddie? Mine? Okay, so mine has nothing to do with like pretty planes or anything like that. Mine's the Q400 because that's the plane I met my husband on. So it's like, you know, near and dear. And that's the plane my dad always wanted to fly was the Q4. So I'm like, that's my favorite. See, it has meaning. It has, you know, these these aircrafts are just aircrafts. Yeah. And and until you give the meaning, mine was 747. That was the first aircraft, jet aircraft that I trained on. It just happens to be the most beautiful aircraft in the world. Yes. I love that. We, we, everything like, I like making things personal, like our, Mm. our plane's name. I mean, it's always been John. Like we never called the cub, the cub. It was, my dad would always ask, do you want to go fly John today? And (laughs) we actually growing up, like I would envision the airplane as like this sentient being like it had emotions like it had feelings because <laughs> the way my dad described it and the way he would teach me how to fly he'd be like well you don't want to do this because that's going to hurt him you know and I don't know I love I Aww. maybe that's just the kid in me but I like placing sentimental value into things yeah. that wouldn't otherwise yeah it gives it meaning and it has value and at the end of the day you know we all want to belong belong still to your dad today so that's a lovely story thank you for sharing yeah all right you want me to ask the next one maddie yeah go ahead yeah what's your okay so this is the like unrelated to aviation ones um (laughs) what's your favorite shape of pasta i love this question because i love pasta (laughs) Mm. well without question angel hair 
Ooh, angel okay. hair. Ooh, mm-hmm. I yeah. love angel hair. Like an angel hair shrimp scampi. Yes. Oh, divine. Yeah, exactly. It takes me a little closer to the sky. Mm. Oh. What about you, Maddie? This was like so hard for me because I'm the same. I like love all types of pasta, but if I'm going to be super indulgent in my pasta, I'm going to have macaroni. And we've already talked about how much we love cheese. So mm. like, it really makes sense that I would choose macaroni because it's just like this cheese Latin pasta. Mm. Sounds I yummy. <laughs> mine's definitely a penne. Like is, is penne the one that's kind of like a bow, like a bow tie, like it's scrunched in the middle? Uh, no, that's bow tie pasta. Yeah. Oh, well, yeah. I like bow tie pasta. I don't know why it it's uh-huh. one of the pastas that's easily you can easily pick it up with your fork. Yeah. It oh, holds yeah. a decent amount of sauce and flavor. Um, mm-hmm. And I know this technically isn't a pasta, but I do love a good old nochi. Oh, <laughs> those are the best. Mm-hmm. You feel like you have a, a big big belly afterwards or like a a big something in your belly but boy they are so tasty and going down it's worth every bit of agony afterwards yeah I want to learn how to make them apparently they're it's not hard to make you just like boil potatoes mash them and then it's like potatoes and flour Um, I totally made some and I know you just said it's not hard, but it that was like the longest meal I've ever meal prepped because it was a <laughs> it was a vegan gnocchi, and I, I think I made it with sweet potato. But oh my gosh, it was so good! After I was like, it was oh my worth it. <laughs> oh, oh, you you girls are making me hungry now. <laughs> I'm making myself hungry. <laughs> okay, we should do that. like a. Oh, oh, go ahead, Emma. No, I'm like, we should do like a nochi making session. Like my, one of my girlfriends, her and her friend, like every Christmas it's tradition. They just get together and make nochi. And I'm like, I need to do something like that. Like I need yeah. a pasta making day. <laughs> yeah. 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 Oh, that sounds so that. much fun. I just, uh, every month I call a group of, um, women that I associate with and you know just to check in they're all aviators and we were talking about having a cookie exchange at Christmas and I'm thinking yeah I I haven't done that since I was a little girl and so I had to get some instruction on how to do it but it reminds me of the gnocchi party that you have Em. Mm. All right our last question Maddie I'll let you ask it. All right so this one is also related to food but it's um have you ever had food poisoning and if you have just elaborate yes i had it once and unfortunately <laughs> it was in a crew meal oh crew, crew box yes it you know you they put it on the aircraft you know it's supposed to be kept cool but who knows and you know getting back to pilots eating healthy i mean these days you're 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 lucky if you get a hot meal i mean as if you're flying eight hours a day or on long hauls they just put these boxes and it's all cold food and this happens to be some tuna fish and i think Mm. the tuna fish um, had some sour mayonnaise in it Mm. But yeah, it wasn't, it wasn't a pretty, it wasn't a pretty sight. And it, I didn't, <laughs> I did not feel good for three days. Oh man, that's a long time. Yeah. Emma, what about you? Oh goodness. I've gotten food poisoning twice. The first time I got, um, 
at, I got it from Chick-fil-A and it was very, <laughs> it was very immediate. Um, and I won't give you too many details, but like I had a 30 minute drive and like it hit immediately and I still had 30 minutes so I could get home. I did not make it home. Um, my <laughs> brother and sister, and it was such a tragic time because my, I think this was around the time that my mom and dad, my dad was on the SI. He was like in Charlotte with his doctors, with my mom doing a bunch of different stuff. And we had, we were all by ourselves and our hot water heater went out and it was the middle of winter. And I'll never forget getting home. And of course I've thrown up all over myself, all over my car and I get out of the car and I'm like, uh, you know, oh my God. My brother comes outside. He's like, Oh my God, what happened to you? And then my sister's right behind him. She's like, ew, oh my God, Emma. And then my brother like jumps into action. He's like, okay, first off, like you're going to hate me for this, but we have to get you out of these clothes. And like, I don't know what we're going to do. You have two options. I can either hose you down out here or you're going to have to take a cold shower. I was like, just get it over with. And my, my brother and sister hosed me down with our garden hose on the concrete. I'll never forget that. My sister was laughing so hard and I was sick. I was sick for days. And then recently I got it. I got, I got food poisoning. And this time I didn't even, I didn't even let it play games with me. I went immediately to the urgent care. They hooked me up to an IV. They gave me medicine. I was just I learned my lesson the hard way the first time I'm not yeah. doing it again, but it gives you like, um, like almost like a little bit of trauma, like a little bit of PTSD. Now I'm so skeptical about what to eat. Like, I don't know why I just, I'm like, Oh my God, what if this isn't cooked enough? Oh my God. What if mm. this is bad? I've been putting my eggs in water to see if they'll float because I'm so paranoid. <laughs> oh my God. <laughs> Yo, that, that is, it's a funny story now, but I'm sure it wasn't too funny yeah. when you were going through it yeah oh, well, that's <laughs> thank you feel. It's thanks for like sharing hind- hindsight's 2020 and everything's way more funny after the fact yeah oh yeah, yeah. oh yeah absolutely I sent Maddie, my boyfriend was with me. I was like, Zach, take, take a picture and send it to Maddie. And I've got a classic picture of me, like looking half dead, hooked up to the IV. And that was the first time I've ever gotten an IV. I'm deathly afraid of it. I, the, the idea of it all is very just nerve wracking for me. I, in that moment, I could have, I, I literally couldn't have cared less. Like I was mm-hmm. so in pain. Mm-hmm. I was like, hook me up. Oh. <laughs> oh, good. But what about you, Maddie? Um, I'm gonna bypass this just because we're out of time. Is that okay? Or do you know your family? Yeah. (laughs) All right. All right. Well, we will wrap up this week's episode. Thank you again so much, Renee, for joining us. And where can we find your book and give yourself a plug for your website? Uh, Well, thank you very much. The book is called uh, This is Your Captain Speaking, What You Should Know About Your Pilot's Mental Health. You can find it on Amazon or my book landing page is captainreneeo.com. That's R-E-Y-N-E. I spell my first name a little uniquely. Uh, But the easiest way is just go to Amazon and put in This is Your Captain Speaking and it will pop up. And then the website is pilotingtowellbeing.com. There's a, it's, there's a something for everyone there and sign up for a newsletter and, and the three-day health challenge. And I look forward in uh, seeing you online. 
Yeah. Well, again, thank you again for joining us. It was a blast. We really, really loved having you on, Renee. Oh, well, thank you very much for asking me. Thanks for having me. And I really enjoyed it. Thank you very much. Thank you. Thank you.